Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the unsealed but heavily redacted affidavit for the search warrant that was executed by the FBI on August the 8th in their seizure of a dozen boxes of classified material from Mar-a-Lago. The affidavit reveals that there were 184 classified documents, 25 of which were top secret, in the 15 boxes retrieved by the National Archives back in January. So presumably, the latest batch that Trump held onto were even more sensitive. Joining us is someone with a career in handling top secret documents, Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threat Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe for the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Security, and Science for Policy. Then we'll look into the possibility that a Russian-speaking Ukrainian grifter posing as Anna de Rothschild, who was able to regularly penetrate Mar-a-Lago, could have been what the KGB called a Red Sparrow. Joining us is Will Jordan, a London-based reporter and senior video producer at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He has won the One World Media Award for Corruption Reporting for Stealing Paradise, an expose of gangsterism, bribery and money laundering in the Maldives and its international nexus. His work in Ukraine, the oligarchs, exposed a shadow trade in the $1.5 billion of frozen assets linked to the former President Viktor Yanukovych. And he's the author of an article at the OCCRP, Inventing Anna. Ukrainian-born scammer posed with Trump and wandered Mar-a-Lago, and at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, inventing Anna, the tale of a fake heiress, Mar-a-Lago, and an FBI investigation. Then finally, with Biden decrying the Trump MAGA GOP as, quote, a threat to our very democracy, they refuse to accept the will of the people. It's not just Trump, but the entire philosophy that underpins them, it's like semi-fascism. Joining us to assess the scope of MAGA voter suppression and what can be done about it is Richard Hassan, a professor of law at UCLA where he's the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project. He is a nationally recognized expert on election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law and is the author of a number of books including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. His latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And we will discuss his latest article at Slate with Dahlia Lithwick, The Truly Scary Part of the $1.6 billion Conservative Donation. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. 
help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe for the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. And his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Treverton. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, in terms of the sort of counterintelligence nightmare at, at Mar-a-Lago, it's almost as though uh, you have to be careful what you wish for in terms of Donald Trump wanting the affidavit which was behind the justification for the FBI executing the search warrant in Mar-a-Lago on August the 8th. He wanted it revealed. Now you've got a largely redacted document, but uh, still enough in there that's pretty damning, frankly. You know, 184 different uh, classified documents, 92 of them secret, 25 of them top secret. So is this backfiring on Trump? I think it is. I think it is. It's still unclear why he did this, why he kept them, what use he wanted to make. But uh, every argument that's made is is pretty is either silly or um, just wrong. Uh, the idea that he could declassify documents, he could declassify documents, but there's a process for doing that. And then you have to ask why in the world would he want to declassify these documents that have really important information relevant to U.S. national security. So if he had declassified them, they would have been themselves either not declassified or so highly redacted as to be uh, not very useful. But that whole argument about declassification is just simply a red herring as far as I'm concerned. Uh, And we come back to the question of why? Why did he have these documents and why did he not give them back? Well, that is the uh, (laughs) hanging over the whole uh, situation. And this redacted document, along with what's revealed, is basically the evidence that the FBI and the DOJ had before the August the 8th search warrant. And it was largely referring to the cache of documents that were retrieved by the National Archives back in January of this year. And apparently there was no lock on the storage area at Mar-a-Lago until June of this year. So I just find that mind-boggling, particularly when we learn, in fact, in the segment following um, this interview, Greg, we're we're talking to one of the reporters who broke the story about this Russian-speaking Ukrainian woman who appears to have been a grifter posing as a a Rothschild. She entered Mar-a-Lago on any number of occasions. On one particular day, five times, she hung out with Trump was photographed with Trump and Lindsey Graham playing golf and uh, dining with Don Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Gufoil, along with the head of Trump's fundraising operation and other of Trump's closest associates. So, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a counterintelligence nightmare. So do we really know whether these documents, including the ones that are referenced in this unsealed affidavit, 
could have ended up in uh, foreign hands? We don't know, I think. And, and uh, the hard part is we, we may never know. So as you say, it is a counterintelligence nightmare. You know, that even, because uh, even, even the, if you had a, say, a, a report from a, a spy, that, that report would not reveal the spy's name. But for a foreign country to know that we had a spy, uh, that is important information for them. Ditto for a country uh, on whose, whose code we may have broken or uh, someone who's being eavesdrop on. Um, those things, all you'd have to know is that that was happening. That would be a, a signal to the country or individuals concerned to do something about it. So it really is a counterintelligence nightmare. We don't know who saw them. We don't know what, whether Trump was just collecting them as he collected other trinkets or whether he was using them for influence to inflate his ego or whether maybe he actually had some intention to use them for financial gain. Those seem to be about the only three knowing Trump, those seem to be about the only three possible purposes, uh, collection, vanity, and money. Well, isn't there an, an old acronym in, in the intelligence world, MICE, about how you recruit agents? MICE meaning M for money, I for ideology, C for compromise, and E for ego. And Trump marks all of those boxes with perhaps a section of ideology. Yes, no, absolutely. He does check all those boxes. No apparent ideology, or at least no ideology much beyond him. But he, absolutely, absolutely. And that, that makes it doubly worse. And we just don't know and may never know who saw these documents. Um, the Ukrainian woman is obviously a, a very dangerous signal. Uh, but it is, as you say, a counterintelligence nightmare. And um, one that I think is, is going to obviously trouble the Justice Department, the FBI, and the, but also the intelligence agencies for a, a long time to come, unfortunately. And again, I'm speaking with Gregory Treverton, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe for the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Well, in the documents that are visible, it does mention U.S. Code, Criminal Code 793E, which criminalizes the unlawful retention of information relating to national defense and the transmission of information uh, relating to national defense. And that's about as serious as it gets. But there's also documents marked HCS, FISA, ORCON, NOFORN, and SI. HCS indicates the material is about human sources and spies, etc. FISA relates to court-ordered surveillance, uh, collecting foreign intelligence, including wiretaps. ORCON means the document is so sensitive that its originator must approve any request to share it. No form means material can't be shared by any foreign entities, including allies. And SI is short for special intelligence, which relates to intercepts typically handled by the National Security Agency. So, you know, I mean, Trump could have unmasked all kinds of people, couldn't he, from uh, for NSA intercepts, which, are, you know, where the foreign targets are, are visible, but not the... Uh, Americans uh, who might have interacted with them? Conceivably, conceivably. I haven't uh, seen, 
I've seen all of those materials you mentioned, and you've got the categories right. They are all to be dealt with very carefully. Uh, I haven't seen FISA material on Americans. That That's a, a separate and very restricted category, as, as you know. I have to go back to the court to get those permissions. Um, so I haven't seen those. But what, what those might consist of, um, again, interesting question. And why Trump would be interested is, again, one of the big questions hanging over all this. Well, it is the one thing that's hovering over, it, as, you, as you mentioned from the very beginning, is the, the question is, why did he do this? Now, apparently, some of these documents, they were mixed in with newspaper clippings and letters and fan mail and pictures and whatever he was collecting. But some of the secret documents and the top secret documents apparently have his handwritten notes all over them. So the notes might actually explain uh, the purpose of, of retaining them. Is that possible? I think it is possible. It'd be interesting to see what the notes say. Uh, and that should give some hint, or we hope some hint, to why he was doing all this. Uh, but it's, you know, the, the usual procedure is so careful for these documents, administration to the next. Basically, you know, presidents, former presidents can have access to their materials, but basically only in very careful circumstance in special rooms, uh, and not not to not to own them or possess them, merely to use them for memoir and other purposes. But this is just this is really unprecedented. When we, when we think back to uh, earlier administrations, where uh, one national security advisor in the Clinton administration uh, was severely punished rather severely because he pulled one document and took it with him when he was in the archives doing research relevant to his own memoir. So this is this is something we that's for us on the inside just unimaginable. When you're on the inside, you get so used to being so careful with all these documents uh, to have a president call them off, put them in his basement, mix them up with other things. That's really, for us, just unthinkable. But it's worth noting, though, that this unmasked affidavit relates to documents that were retrieved by the National Archives back in January. And then in, in June the current head of the counterintelligence at the Department of Justice, uh, Jay Bratt, he went there with, to Mar-a-Lago with some FBI agents and uh, they were given a document by Trump's lawyer saying that everything has been taken back. And a couple of days later, Jay Bratt wrote to Trump at Mar-a-Lago and said, at least please put a lock on the door. So obviously the lawyers that wrote that letter or Trump himself could well be in trouble. But the point mm -hmm. is, surely, that... If Trump gave what he gave back in January to the National Archives, but he retained these at least 12 boxes, including some that were caught, found in the closet of his office or his bedroom, that would indicate to me that the stuff that they got on, on August the 8th, the most recent uh, batch, are probably even more top secret, right, if Trump held them back. You would imagine that that would be logical. I mean, if he if he uh, if he gave back some and held some, those would presumably be the ones he cared most about for whatever set of reasons, and probably uh, other things equal. You would imagine that they would be among the most secret of the documents. So the affidavit also references Cash Patel and talks about 
an article that he sent to Breitbart, and he's, he was put in charge of the documents by Trump fairly recently, and he made the, the statement that Trump had the uh, authority to issue a blanket declassification of all the documents, which is totally absurd. But he has an interesting record in government. He's a protege of Devin Nunez, and both Devin Nunez and he and this other character, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, and by the way, they both Patel and Watnick ended up. Cohen ended up at the Department of Defense in the top position there, and may well have had something to do with why the National Guard weren't deployed while the uh, Capitol Police were begging for help on um, January the sixth. But that aside, the history of Patel and Nunez, who's now running Trump's equivalent of his Twitter, Truth Social. They've always been uh, dedicated to burying the ties that Trump has with Russia. They also uh, did everything they could to shift the blame away from Russia onto Ukraine, suggesting somehow that Ukraine was behind the efforts to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, which makes no sense. So what? obviously what we had down in Mar-a-Lago it was a situation where any foreign hostile foreign intelligence service would be remiss if they hadn't targeted it. But what do we know about the loyalties of people like Cash Patel and Devin Nunez? It's always been troubling. I mean, a while back, Kevin McCarthy was in a conversation with Paul Ryan, who was then the Speaker of the House, and McCarthy said, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabach, or a congressman out here in Orange County, and Donald Trump are both on Putin's payroll. So we've never really figured out the extent to which Putin has had people on his payroll or at least uh, sympathetic to him inside the U.S. government. So do you think we'll ever get the counterintelligence files on all of this activities? Because there's a lot of smoke there, and I am assuming at some point or other there's some fire. Yes, I've always assumed that as well. I mean, I've, I've asked myself the question for a long, long time. What, what exactly does Putin have on Trump? What is, what is the hold? Well, there is something there, and my guess is it's probably money, um, but uh, not, not entirely clear. Uh, and for the Nunez and Patels, uh, they've been, like so many people, blindly loyal to Trump, basically loyal to him no matter what, willing to accept whatever lie he says, take that as true, and have been very careful to try and obscure the Russia angle. But that, I think, is has been troubling from the beginning. It's it's always seemed as though Trump behaved as though he were in some sense in sway to Putin. And the question was always, for me, was always, why? As you say, lots of smoke. Uh, we, Miller, the Miller report went a good ways toward uncovering some of the connections, but I think there's still much more there, and uh, it'll be... Fascinating, and I think important. Uh, I hope that it does, as a counterintelligence matter, eventually get clearer. Uh, but it's, we've been worrying about it for a long time now, and it's or don't seem to be very, very much closer to a real explanation. And so it is a great concern, and has been, I think, for me since Trump emerged as a politician. But just in closing, if you combine those suspicions about Trump's fealty or apparent fealty towards Putin and the extent to which they may have compromised on Trump, if you combine that with these documents that he's retained 
and the value of intelligence value of these documents, that's a pretty explosive combination. It is. It's, it, that's in some sense, I think, the, the, the greatest worry that he was using these uh, or tended to use them, maybe already did use them as a, a little emolument for Putin uh, to smooth that relationship for whatever reason he has. As I said, I think it's probably money, but uh, not, not entirely clear. That, I think, is somewhat the, the sharpest immediate worry, that he had a purpose for these. It was connected with uh, getting, getting something from them and maybe getting something, something from them from Vladimir Putin. Well, Greg Traverton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Gregory Treverton, who's a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe for the National Security Council and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at the possibility that a Russian-speaking Ukrainian grifter posing as Anna de Rothschild, who was able to regularly penetrate Mar-a-Lago, could have been what the KGB called a Red Sparrow. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk in Washington, D.C. And everyone on cable news is yelling at me. And there's only one place in this whole wide world I want to go. That's down underneath the Florida sun in Mar-a-Lago. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Jordan, a London-based reporter and senior video producer at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He has won the One World Media Award for Corruption Reporting for Stealing Paradise, an expose on gangsterism, bribery, and money laundering in the Maldives and its international nexus. His work in Ukraine, the oligarchs, exposed a shadow trade in the $1.5 billion of frozen assets linked to the former president, Viktor Yanukovych. And he is a co-author of an article at the Organized Crime and Corruption reporting project Inventing Anna, Ukrainian-born scammer posed with Trump and wandered Mar-a-Lago, and at the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette Inventing Anna, the tale of a fake heiress, Mar-a-Lago, and an FBI investigation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Jordan. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Will, and this is <laughs> quite a story, so we will go into the story for sure, but I wanted to just start out in broad strokes since we're now on Friday, of course, the redacted version of the affidavit behind the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago that took place a, uh, a couple of weeks ago on Monday, obviously uh, got a lot of attention, although there's not much in it that you can see, but is it this story of this Ukrainian-born scammer who was in and out of Mar-a-Lago a lot, is it really about a grifter or is there a counterintelligence dimension to it since I understand that the FBI originally started out with a criminal investigation and then uh, more recently 
the FBI counterintelligence people took over the investigation. So could you tell us where it stands now? Well, um, we have uh, done this research and, and, and discovered that this woman was in and out of Mar-a-Lago. The question is, as, as uh, one of the speakers in our article says, is, is was it a fraud or an intelligence threat? And, um, you know, w we simply uh, will have to wait and see what, uh, what the FBI uh, does. We know that um, a number of individuals have spoken with the FBI about this issue. And so how they're pursuing it and whether they're specifically pursuing it as uh, some sort of counterintelligence uh, issue or whether it's, it's simply about the security and the potential uh, fraud, uh, we don't know yet. So let's talk about what we do know about, you know, Yashishin, uh, who called herself Anna de Rothschild and was in and out of Mar-a-Lago. She's posing with photographs with Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Goofoyle, along with members of Trump's inner circle, particularly in terms of his uh, national fundraising, and a couple of uh, sort of wealthy supporters of Trump as well. Uh, there's pictures of her with Trump on the golf course, and there's pictures of her with Trump and Lindsey Graham on the golf course. So what kind of a, a regular was she? I mean, it's hard to know. Obviously, you have to spend, what, half a quarter of a million dollars to join that club. So it's out of reach for most of the reporters I know. So what do we know about her frequency at Mar-a-Lago? Well, we don't know that she was a member of the club. What we know is that she uh, visited there um, on the one occasion that is, in which she's photographed and uh, and videoed um, playing golf and eating. And um, we know that she drove in to Mar-a-Lago on more than one occasion. Now, her sort of legend, if you like, has been kind of uh, years in the making. She passed herself off, uh, we understand, as um, Anna de Rothschild um, and suggested that she was part of the billionaire banking dynasty of the uh, of the UK and Europe, um, which was not true. She spoke um, of Monaco, uh, spending a lot of time there, of vineyards, family estates, and so on. But in fact, um, she was a Ukrainian woman whose life was more um, hand to mouth than that and uh, she was spending her time more often uh, meeting men uh, going out on dates with them and then uh, as she describes this in a deposition then handing over to others who would ask those men for money and indeed a, a couple of men uh, who did not want to be identified, did say that they had uh, found themselves out of pocket. So the question, I suppose, is, is this an escalation of that sort of scam, uh, or is it uh, something else? Um, what we have here is also a lot of questions about how a person like that, uh, with an identity that is not uh, her true identity, can get into a place like Mar-a-Lago, spend time with all of these people and uh, begin um, to work on them in one way or another. 
And again, I'm speaking with Will Jordan, a London-based reporter and senior video producer at the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He has won the One World Media Award for Corruption Reporting for Stealing Paradise, an expose of gangsterism, bribery and money laundering in the Maldives and its international nexus. And his work in Ukraine, the oligarchs exposed a shadow trade in the $1.5 billion of frozen assets linked to the former President Viktor Yanukovych. And he is the co-author of an article at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, Inventing Anna, Ukrainian-born scammer posed with Trump and wandered Mar-a-Lago. And at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Inventing Anna, the tale of a fake heiress, Mar-a-Lago, and an FBI investigation. But, Will, you used uh, an intelligence term, her legend. And just looking at it in, in a cursory way, it seems to have... It could have the fingerprints of Russian intelligence in the sense that, I mean, she came to the U.S. from Russia. She married a Russian guy. His name is Sergei Gubulev. That's how she got her green card. And she lived with this other Russian scammer, Tarasenko. He seems like he pimped her out to find rich guys that she could shake down on dates. Um, in the article you say, if you quote her, I would go on dates, make a friendship, and Valeria Tarashenko would take my phone and start contacting the guys from my phone and ask for the need for food, to, for to pay bills, ask for cash, etc. So, But she was also in, involved with a, a group called Miami Mama, or Miami Mama, a controversial South Florida company that helped expectant Russian mothers give birth in the United States so that they could gain citizenship. And then the woman that ran her fake charity, Verzelina, she's now back in Russia, apparently fielding uh, death threats. So I know that's anecdotal, but it, cumulatively it looks pretty suspicious to me. Uh, it's always hard with issues like this to separate separate the various strands of um, organized crime, um, of uh, potentially, uh, theoretically, intelligence and of, of other influences. Um, and in this case, we have not, through the reporting, discovered any, uh, any tangible links to uh, intelligence. What we have found is um, apparent fraud uh, and certainly the charity United Hearts of Mercy uh, was removed from the payment processing platform Stripe because of what they felt was fraudulent activity, uh, and there were, there were other things. Um, now, we all know that uh, fraud, um, small organized crime groups, uh, and others all uh, are used by uh, Russian intelligence and in this case it's hard to know uh, you you have an organized group here working on very small level scams but they are also arranging to people are arriving in the u.s and finding ways to stay and certainly um who knows it's it's uh, it could well be that there are uh, russian intelligence fingerprints on this we have not found any but you could make the case, and I've spoken to a former CIA officials recently about this, that given Trump's sloppy handling of documents and the fact that he took so many 
top secret documents with him and then held on to them and then gave some back and then lied to the FBI and the DOJ that he'd given them all back. Uh, and then turns out there was at least 11 more boxes that he hadn't, that he'd held on to and those were recently seized. So from, from what intelligence people that I've talked to say that the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians and whoever else would have been remiss their intelligence services would have been remiss if they didn't target Mar-a-Lago. It was one of the most ripest targets in the world where you get the most top-secret documents under the least secure conditions. Well, I mean, here's a story that shows uh, why it is important for there to be uh, some security around um, the former president and why uh, it's a problem if, you're, if your former president's taking top-secret documents to hotels. We we can see clearly that Trump is a, you know, is a is a highly unusual president, a highly unusual former president, and we know from various stories that yeah, uh, a lot of um, intelligence agencies have targeted him and Mar-a-Lago, and um, what you have here is an illustration of how it is relatively easy, and indeed cheap to get at least in the same photo frame as uh, Donald Trump, and certainly rubbing shoulders with them. Um, his friends and family and fundraisers. And uh, the question for all of the people who are providing security in Mar-a-Lago is, is how is this happening? And, and secondly, what kind of threat is it? Is it one of, of simply fraudsters trying to take a bit of money off uh, those people that move around in Trump world? Or is it really about uh, something bigger than that? And either way, that's a difficult question to be asking. Um, and it goes to show that uh, there are a lot of issues around this uh, unprecedented situation of a former president handling top secret documents and setting himself up in this unusual uh, scenario down in Florida. So do you know where what's happening with her now, the fake uh, Anna de Rothschild, Yashishan? Uh, our reporters spoke with her briefly. And uh, as, as you know, she said um, there was some misunderstanding. Um, she is denying uh, that she has passed herself off as Anna de Rothschild. We know that the FBI has been asking, uh, making inquiries. Um, and so we have to assume that there is, there is an investigation underway. Uh, where she is and what she will be doing, um, well, we think she is, she's in the U.S. and she has a lawyer uh, and that they are dealing with um, with the case as it comes. So whether this then becomes uh, simply a, a fraud case or whether it becomes something larger than that, we'll have to wait and see. But she also had a lot of fake passports, did she not? Yes. So um, Valerie Tarasenko, who was in a legal dispute with her, filed an affidavit in which he, uh, which he included those. And... Um, he alleged in there that, uh, that, that she had um, a number of documents that were false, including passports. And um, there he provided passports in that document, which included a Ukrainian and a Russian uh, passport. Um, now, it's not to say that because you have a fake passport or other fake documents that you are linked to intelligence um, these days, uh, 
uh, what with the dark web and um, the thriving organized crime scene, uh, there's plenty of ways to purchase those documents or obtain them. So uh, what we know is that she she is alleged to have used them and um, that uh, uh, there are Russian and Ukrainian Ukrainian documents there as well as driving licenses and so on. But this is a woman who was using uh, different names um, and was by her own admission uh, used just giving out false information in order to make money off people. Uh, whether it's more than that, we simply don't know yet. And some of these documents were in the name of Anna de Rothschild, right? Yes. So we have um, we have the the passports, um, but that, that is in Ina Yashchishin's uh, name. The the I believe there's a yeah, have a look. I believe we have the um, passport there, the Ukrainian passport, which is in uh, in the name of Ina Yashchishin. And then we also have a Russian passport and various others. But she married a, Ru a Russian U.S. resident and then became, she got a green card and that's essentially her documentation now to be here in the United States. Yes, that's what we understand. She married Sergei Golubev and uh, that was something of a marriage of convenience in order for her to be here. Um, and uh, they later divorced, uh, but through that she uh, gained residence to the U.S. Well, this is a, a story that needs more shoe leather, right? Well, yeah, um, um, certainly it's a long, complicated story with a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, paths to follow. There are a lot of questions still uh, that remain to be answered here. Who exactly was she? Who uh, was she working with? Uh, what was the aim of her, her activities at Mar-a-Lago? Was it simply fraud or was it more? And um, uh, what will be done about this? Uh, because you have um, a former president who's been handling some uh, top secret documents, as we know, and you have a woman here involved in fraud uh, rubbing shoulders with Trump and with the people around him. So we will continue to investigate, and I'm sure the authorities in the U.S. will continue to investigate, and uh, the issue will develop. Well, well, Jordan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Will Jordan, a London-based reporter and senior video producer at the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He won the One World Media Award for Corruption Reporting for Stealing Paradise, an expose on gangsterism, bribery and money laundering in the Maldives and its international nexus. And his work in Ukraine, the oligarchs, exposure shadow trade in the $1.5 billion of frozen assets linked to the former Viktor Yanukovych, and he's the co-author of an article at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, Inventing Anna, Ukrainian-born scam opposed with Trump and wandered Mar-a-Lago, and at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Inventing Anna, the tale of a fake heiress, Mar-a-Lago, and an FBI investigation. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into the scope of the MAGA voter suppression underway and what can be done about it. I'm a spy.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Hassan, who is a professor of law at UCLA and the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project. He is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. And he serves as the founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. His latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And his latest article at Slate with Dahlia Lithwick is The Truly Scary Part of the $1.6 billion Conservative Donation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Hassan. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And on a Thursday night at a fundraiser, President Biden said the MAGA Republicans just don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They are a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy. And then he went on to say, which obviously is getting a lot of attention, what we are seeing now is the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump. It's the entire philosophy that underpins the, I'm going to say something, it's like semi-fascism. So did Trump, did Biden get it right or get it half right? Well, you know, I would still today draw a distinction between the uh, MAGA wing of the Republican Party and the rest of the Republican Party. I think that there certainly are elements within Trumpism that are authoritarian. And uh, there, I think, President Biden's comments are well taken. But I still hold out some hope that uh, much of what has been the Republican Party is simply uh, too weak to fight against Trump right now, but doesn't necessarily embrace his philosophy. And so uh, I don't know where things are going to go in the future, but I don't think that we're in a situation where the entire Republican Party has rejected democracy. But the Republican Party is very much Trump's party. So if they haven't rejected democracy, they do seem to be moving towards a one-party state. And they're doing it on the ground, and they're doing it in a real way, which could well be described as a clear and present danger. I mean, in these 10 states now, since the Republican primaries have taken place, they have uh, secretaries of state and attorney generals who are not just stop the steal supporters and election deniers or election liars is probably a more accurate way to put it. So they're dedicated to basically when they take over, if they take over, depending on what happens in November, isn't it reasonable to assume that you know, if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Isn't that reasonable? Well, sure, except what I think that they say they're going to do is to run elections fairly, and they make the false claims that the last election was not run fairly. Uh, so it's not as though you have people that are saying, you know, if, if I'm elected to office, I'm going to not follow the will of the people, and I'm simply going to manipulate the election to give the result that I want. Now, I think that's what the fear is. And I think it's a legitimate fear because either some of these candidates uh, are just saying that the last election was stolen, which indicates a lack of honesty, 
uh, when it comes to elections, or they actually believe it, which uh, suggests that they could be duped into doing something in the future. Either way, it's not good news. And even if they do try to run elections fairly, uh, why will others you know, on the other side of the aisle believe that they're going to run elections fairly if they would have lied about the last election? So I don't want to minimize the danger here, but it is not quite the same as people saying that they will, uh, you know, if they come to power, they will not follow the election rules. They're saying quite the opposite. They're saying the election rules were not followed before uh, and they will follow them the next time. Well, but there's nothing new about the sort of disingenuous nature of Republican, you know, objections to voting and voting rights. They never say we're against blacks and browns and students voting. They talk about election integrity and and the threat of of illegal votes. And you've got DeSantis down there in Florida. The best he could come up with was 20 people uh, in very ambiguous ways. I think in Texas they found one person, didn't they? They threw some woman in jail for five years. Uh, well, yeah, there have been more. There's more than one case in Texas, but you're right that the numbers are quite low. And it was very telling that the people that uh, DeSantis called out were um, poor felons, people generally people of color. He didn't have a press conference when, for example, there were people caught at the villages, a uh, uh, retirement community in a different part of Florida. Uh, who double voted. Uh, and we have good reason to believe at least some of them double voted for Trump in Florida and another state. And so this is clearly politically motivated. And it's certainly true that the claims of voter fraud uh, are uh, generally raised by people who know better uh, for political reasons. And uh, it is it is very disturbing. And th- it's not a new phenomenon. I've been tracking it for uh, you know, growing for at least the last 20 years. But I do think that Trump took it to a completely different level. Uh, there was a poll that CNN conducted last year where 59% of Republican voters said that believing that the 2020 election was stolen was an important part of what it means to be a Republican. So what's happened is that these claims have moved from the periphery to kind of the, uh, the central animating feature of Donald Trump's potential future candidacy is a kind of candidacy of, of grievance focused on the last election. And so we're in a very dangerous position. Uh, so I really think that, you know, the the 2024 election really is going to be a moment of truth for the United States, assuming that, that Trump or a Trumpist um, candidate runs uh, in 2024, because then we will really see if there's going to be the kind of subversion of election results that we've seen with kind of democrat democratic backsliding in other formerly formerly advanced democracies. And again I'm speaking with Richard Hassan who's a professor of law at UCLA where he's also the director of the Safeguarding Democracy project. His latest book is Cheap Speech: How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And he, he has an article at Slate with Dahlia Lithwick, the truly scary part of the $1.6 billion conservative donation. So let's get into that donation uh, by uh, Barrow said, 90-year-old owner of an electronics company that's done well because of surge protectors for computers. He arranged in secret this deal with Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who'd already raised at least a half a billion dollars to get Gorsuch, Amy Conant Barrett, and Kavanaugh on the court. And prior to that, of course, 
the Federalists got John Roberts and Alito on the court, and they blocked Merrick Garland. So he's already had an amazing influence on our judiciary, where you can where what almost <laughs> the entire conservative block are uh, there because of him, along with so many federal judges, uh, which he also appointed on the list that he gave to to uh, Trump and Trump dutifully, uh, and along with McConnell, just they followed the list. So it's so this is one man that's already had enormous influence on our politics and particularly shaping our judiciary. And now he's got $1.6 billion to play with ahead of the November elections. You just said that the crisis will be in 2024. Why not in November? Because if these stop the steal election deniers get elected, they'll lay the groundwork, of course, for 2024. So couldn't you argue that November, in a way, could be the last Democratic election in American history? Well, I, I certainly hope not, but I share your fears. And the reason I'm focused on 2024 uh, rather than 2022 uh, is because the um, United States presidential election is uniquely open to manipulation. Uh, there are so many steps between the time that voters vote uh, and the time that uh, the, the uh, votes are um, actually certified by Congress that there's just a lot of places where people can manipulate the process. And it really was Republican and Democratic heroes that stood up to Trump and refused to manipulate the election results that saved us last time. Many of those people will be gone. And many of the people who will replace them, uh, as you mentioned earlier, are going to be uh, those who at least make the claim that the election was stolen. So I do think that we are in uh, a very dangerous spot. Uh, And uh, what happens in 2022 is going to affect whether we have a free and fair election in 2024. Um, but even aside from election subversion, uh, one of the points that Dolly and I tried to make in the piece about the Leonard Leo $1.6 billion donation is that there's been a kind of bootstrapping where all of this uh, undisclosed money is raised to put these judges on the Supreme Court and on other courts. And uh, those judges then decide voting cases in ways that perpetuate the the ability of uh, conservatives um, supported by Leonard Leo to be able to um, gain more power. So it's a kind of uh, loop where uh, the judges pass laws that, for example, make gerrymandering easier, make it easier to hide the identity of who's contributing to campaigns make it harder to protect minority voters through the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution, and that this then helps to get more judges put on the court who can then uh, help to, uh, you know, the end game here is not just about manipulating election rules, but getting substantive changes like the abortion ruling in Dobbs, uh, the gun ruling, the upcoming uh, affirmative action ruling that many of us are expecting next term. And so, Uh, the environmental uh, ruling uh, on uh, the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate uh, greenhouse gases. So all of these things uh, line up together uh, to create a situation where those in power are able to use what they already have to gain more power. And it's a translation of economic power into political power very much through the United States judiciary. And, of course, in the next term, the Supreme Court are going to be looking into Moore versus Harper, 
which is a case that involves what many see as a completely bogus independent state legislative theory. And if that comes into play, uh, then there'll be no judicial review for state legislatures deciding who won, right? I mean, they can literally write Well, I I don't agree with that. Um, You know, so I think even um, under the more extreme versions of this independent state legislature theory, which says just to just to briefly explain it, that the Constitution gives state legislatures alone the power to decide the rules for running uh, federal elections and, and rules that can't even be overcome by uh, a violation of the state constitution as determined by the state Supreme Court. I don't think that would give a state legislature the power after an election to take away the ability of um, voters to have voted for president. Already, I mean, talk about a flaw in the Constitution. Already under the Constitution, the Supreme Court confirmed in the 2000 Bush versus Gore case that ended the 2000 election dispute that state legislatures could take back their power to choose presidential electors directly. That is, there's no constitutional right to um, vote for president in the United States. That's a flaw in our Constitution. But I don't think that this case is going to lead to that. What it's going to lead to is that the already the federal courts are not very protective of the constitutional right to vote uh, contained in various parts of the Constitution. What this would do is take away the ability of uh, state courts to use state constitutions to protect voting rights. In Moore versus Harper itself, after the federal courts said, we're not going to get into the business of policing partisan gerrymandering, the drawing of district lines to favor one party or hurt another. Uh, instead, we are, uh, uh, you know, we're going to find under the state constitution a right against partisan gerrymandering. That's what the uh, state Supreme Court said. And the argument that Republicans are making now against that is that state courts can't even apply state constitutions to protect voters. And so it's not as dire as you described it, but it's still pretty dire. Well, it does uh, reflect, uh, and in your article uh, with uh, Dahlia at Slate, the truly scary part of the $1.6 billion conservative donation, uh, you point out that Leo and is a disciple of Scalia and his judicial theories, such as originalism and textualism. And when you talk about how we have a vulnerable system with this interregnum between the time that you have an election and the time that you have an inauguration of the next president the next year, January the 20th, obviously a lot of mischief happened in that interregnum, uh, including a coup attempt against the United States government itself by Trump and his supporters. The reason I believe that we have that flaw is because when the Constitution was written, it took people days and days, weeks and weeks to come from the furthest hinterland of the United States back then to come to Washington with the Electoral College, Electoral Slates, etc. So isn't that a bit of an irony in terms of originalism? In other words, they believe that the Constitution is frozen in time at the time that the Founding Fathers wrote it, but we're no longer riding horses and buggies. You know, we can fly, we can drive. I mean, how did originalism and textualism, how did it ever get taken so seriously in the first place? I guess that's my question. Well, you know, I think Dolly and I explained in the article that uh, this was the kind of intellectual architecture that allowed the courts to mostly come to uh, conservative readings of the Constitution and of statutes. And uh, it's a selective reading. 
Uh, in my book uh, that you mentioned, The Justice of Contradictions, I point out how uh, originalists often ignore um, uh, originalist arguments when it goes against their conservative principles, for example, on whether affirmative action uh, would be allowed. Uh, they're, they're, uh, on what the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause was in terms of segregation. Uh, if you were truly an originalist, you would reject Brown versus Board of Education, and yet uh, the Supreme Court, at least so far, has not been willing to do that. Um, things uh, like originalism and textualism provide what uh, Justice Scalia argued were neutral principles for deciding cases, but, but in the hands of these conserved justices and judges, They've been anything but neutral. And so uh, the Federalist Society, which is one of uh, the organizations that Leonard Leo has been very um, uh, uh, instrumental in building, kind of provided the intellectual backbone for kinds of arguments that allow for conservative legal positions to move forward, whether it's in a case like Dobbs, where the right to uh, choose an abortion is rejected, or the application of uh, a kind of selective history in the Bruin case to try to uh, bolster gun rights, that all of these things, uh, you know, with a, you know, a few notable exceptions, like Justice Scalia would point to his uh, ruling on flag burning, almost all of the, the rulings tend to be in a very conservative direction. And, and th this is done under the cloak of claiming that there is uh, a uh, neutral principle that does not require uh, application of one's values to determining what the Constitution means. Well, Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the few champions that are warning us about Leonard Leo and the inordinate power of one man to shape our judiciary. And now, with 1.6 billion in his pocket, the ability to shape the next election. Uh, Whitehouse is basically saying these billionaires are hiding behind these dark money vehicles that Leonard Leo is their champion or their conduit are essentially pushing through stuff and selling it with their enormous amounts of money through their through their media outlets to the American people who would never, ever vote for these things. So isn't that the mechanism to get stuff like banning abortion that's unpopular into law in this country around the first and second branch of the government, which is the Democrats happen to control at the moment. Yes, I certainly think that uh, the, the a key part of what has been driving uh, Leonard Leo's power is the, the amount of money that he has, often undisclosed money, and, and Senator Whitehouse has been instrumental in, in pointing that out. Uh, one of the things that the Republicans in the Senate have done over the last uh, decade has been to prevent the Internal Revenue Service from regulating more closely these 501c4 social welfare organizations that are involved in uh, political activities. And this new organization, the, the Marble Trust, that was created with the $1.6 billion uh, that came from the donation, uh, is a 501c4. And so uh, Leo helped get Republicans elected to the Senate. The Senate then helps Leo raise more money. Uh, that uh, money is used to support putting conservatives on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then issues rulings that help uh, Leo gain more power. 
and eventually create the conditions for a supermajority of conservative justices on the Supreme Court to be able to pursue a very conservative political agenda. Well, Richard Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Hassan, who is a professor of law at UCLA, where he's also the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project. And he is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and the co-author of a leading case book on election law. And his latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And his latest article at Slate with Dahlia Lithwick is The Truly Scary Part of the 1.6 Billion Conservative Donation. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappear.